Welcome to everyone who's joining us on the Local Churchology podcast for today's conversation with Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall. My name is Tyler Tavares. I'm an associate pastor at Coburg Alliance Church in Coburg, Ontario. And my co-host today is Daryl Buckle. He is the lead pastor at Coburg Alliance, and we are beyond thrilled, so excited for today's conversation. In today's conversation, we're going to explore the relationship between linguistics and biblical interpretation, along with four key texts that are usually cited in the development of theologies of gender from Galatians, from 1 Corinthians, and from 1 Peter. Our guest and our subject matter expert, Cynthia Long Westfall, is an associate professor of New Testament at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. She's the author of Discourse Analysis of the Letter to the Hebrews, The Relationship Between Form and Meaning, and she's the author of Paul and Gender, Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ. She's one of the general editors for the third edition of the book, Discovering Biblical Equality, Biblical Theological, Cultural, and Practical Perspectives. And she served as, and Cindy, if you could explain this for me again, as you've been a part of, you're on the editorial board for the Common English Bible, and then you were involved in producing one of the translations for one of the texts. Is that right? Yeah, I was I was the associate Greek editor, so I actually ended up editing uh, the Pauline epistles and a couple of other things. And I was the first translator for the Book of Hebrews, as well as Third Maccabees. Cool. Okay. Yes. Well, very nice. We'll have a really important question to kind of kick things off, Cindy. And uh, and my question is, you know, what if you had a snack food, a snack food that you could go to right now? What would it be? Hummus. Hummus with hummus. scoops. With scoops, right? Nice. Has yeah. to be scoops. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah, hummus with scoops. I like that. You know, my son is a huge hummus fan. He's he's a year old. And uh, he doesn't use the scoops or he doesn't use, you know, the chips and eat Does the he chips. use a spoon? He, hummus. he would. If we gave him one, he definitely would. Yeah. Hummus. Do you go with the traditional hummus? Do you go with hummus with roasted red pepper? What's your go-to there? Well, I, I have a. I, I first of all, it's got to be homemade because I don't oh, like preserved yeah. that preservative taste. Yuck! You know, it ruins yeah. it. So homemade hummus, but I don't. For dietary purposes, I will often leave out the tahini, and so I just that okay. basic. But a lot garlic, yeah. man. There has to be garlic. Good garlic. Yeah. Yes. Well, we're on the same page on that one. What about you, Daryl? Yeah. What's your go-to? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of a mixed nuts guy uh, when I'm not behaving smarties. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, well. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah. That's a good choice. We have, in our in our pantry right now, we were given, no, we, yeah, we, we have a little bag of those, you know, those acai berries and blueberries, mm. and they have chocolate, they're like chocolate-coated. I, I can't stop eating those. And so the bag that we had in our house, it just did not did not last long. It was too good. That's a go-to for me if we have them. Well, well, that's that's um it's great to hear, Cindy, that you love hummus. We all, I think, here uh present certainly love hummus. And so uh I'd love to hear a little bit more uh from the from kind of a personal side of things as we dig into this really important conversation that we're gonna have today. I want to ask if you can start by sharing some of your personal and some of your professional journey when it comes to this conversation around gender in the church. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to start with saying I was 
raised in a non-Christian home that was fairly dysfunctional. Uh, we had an issue of uh, mental illness and addictions. And so when I was 14, I, I came, to, uh, came to faith, I think, as a, as a, out of need. I really needed a change. I needed to have something different in my life. And so I, that was in the 1960s. It was part of the Jesus movement. But I soon joined a fundamentalist church, which was a really life-giving experience for me, actually. Um, I really latched on to the authority of Scripture and the transformative power of Scripture. And so I just devoured Scripture um, and I thought that was the thing that was going to transform me and that, that was going to change me. And I, it, it was good. It, it did. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. it saved my life and, and preserved me you know, for, for ultimate salvation as well. So I, I, believe, in, I believe that uh, Scripture is supposed to impact us now pragmatically. It's supposed to change our lives. And this, it, I've never stopped having this commitment in my life. Uh, I love the passage in Deuteronomy 32:46. These words are your life. And that's yeah. kind of uh, almost my life verse, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I would just, as I was pouring over scripture, reading it late into the night and uh, paying attention to every sermon, taking notes, every class that I took. Um, I, even, I even got people to teach me on the Trinity on dates, if I remember right. <laughs> so, that must have been a drag. But... Uh, <laughs> I completely accepted the restrictions on women. I just wanted to learn what I was supposed to do, uh, be who I was called to be, and obey scripture. But as I continued in my journey, I started to experience a, a dissonance and confusion and conflict between you know, my application of scripture and uh, how the feedback I was getting. I didn't seem to be doing it right. And, my response to that was to double down and study harder and, and learn more. And, and I, you might gather I'm an extrovert, so, and I'm going to talk. So I study scripture <laughs> and I talk about it everywhere, you know, in the home, yeah. on the road, in class, I'm going to talk. You know, it didn't seem very authoritative to me. And I'm also a critical thinker. I think that was part of growing up in my family. And that had been my super uh, power for survival. <laughs> so... Um, it took a long time for me to realize that these were the things that were actually um, part of the problem. I was—I remember uh, a, a woman who was an egalitarian saying to me, Cindy, you say you're a complementarian, but you don't act like it. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <You know>? <laughs> what? <laughs> I just didn't get it. I thought, you know, intuitive and straightforward and it'd be in the mode spiritually. What could be wrong? And so... Um, this kind of put me on a slow trajectory of looking at scripture and looking at the scriptures and how they're be being used um, to restrict women, actually call them down in their personalities, gifting and calling and, and saying, is this, is this right? Um, 22 years after I, I came to faith, after Bible school, seminary, full-time campus ministry, marriage, children, homeschooling. Uh, being involved, deeply involved in an inner city ministry, urban ministry, um, I, I finally changed my mind. 1989, I know exactly when it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I had no intention of changing my behavior. Um, I, did, I was going to change anything I was doing. But I just came to the position of 
this is this is correct. That's what my study is about. What's correct? What's not correct? And uh, so that seemed to be that. I got involved in an egalitarian support group, uh, Christians for Biblical Equality. Uh, but that led me to two experiences in which I had a clear call to go on for a PhD. And uh, it was to me unmistakable, like a clarion bell, that this was this was go- this was going to happen. And uh, so as I pursued that, my mentors actually told me to distance myself from my egalitarian support group and definitely do not do any, you know, do not publish or do not do work, do not present papers on women in ministry or on these passages because they said it would undermine my credibility in any other topic. And at first I, I actually did this. I said, okay, off the table. And I, it, was, it was a really great move, I think, because um, I became involved in applying linguistics uh, to the Greek and doing discourse analysis of the New Testament and really, really delving into the book of Hebrews and becoming, becoming known for that. And I picked up some wonderful tools that I constantly use. I mean, not just in, in all my Bible study and all my understanding of Scripture. But then after a time, my, um, my PhD supervisor, Stan Porter, asked me to write the book, Paul and Gender, for a series that he was editing. And I couldn't see refusing. I mean, at, at that point, well, that's an opportunity. You know, I'm gonna, that's a door I'm going to walk through. And I also, though, meanwhile, could not refuse, when I, when I was teaching a class, could not refuse uh, equipping women uh, for ministry, um, it, with the, you know, with working with them on these key passages and and supporting them in their calling, um, by what I was convinced was biblical teaching, and uh, so uh, to, to put it briefly, say in 1989, I was convinced that the complementarian uh, interpretation of key passages was implausible, but my interpretation of those key passages really evolved as I worked to understand them um, in the context for writing this book. I mean, it re- mm-hmm. but I took a long, I took my sweet time to write this book. I took about mm-hmm. 10 years and uh, really, really tried to dot every I and cross every T that I could in terms of um, trying to be faithful to the text. So what's interesting, and it's, it's, it's great to hear your story, Cindy. What's interesting is that you mentioned, you know, the advice to not get involved uh, in this conversation, I think I've heard maybe you say elsewhere that that Craig Keener himself, you know, a prolific author who got involved in writing on topics of gender, ended up getting a lot of criticism. People sort of almost thought that he wasn't up to snuff with his scholarship because of what he pursued. Right. Craig, uh, Craig Keener is an internationally known scholar of huge repute and influence, and yet because he wrote a book that supported women in ministry, he was called a bad scholar by a leading complementarian. Um, he's not the only one, but I, I would say, and I had, a, I had a discussion with him. It broke my heart, and he was, he was so upset about it. I was like, Craig, that's, that's not a comment on you. <laughs> that's a comment yeah, on the person yeah. who said it. But uh, yeah. when that was done uh, to more vulnerable people, such as women scholars, uh, it tended to be destructive, yeah. Yeah. Not to him, though. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So why? So this conversation that we're having, we're asking this of, of a lot of those who are contributing. 
to this this entire conversation on our podcast. Why does the conversation we're having today, why does it matter so much? You've alluded to some things, maybe personally and professionally, mm -hmm. but why does it matter so much? Well, I could say a number of things about this, but I'm going to st stick to where my priorities are, and that is rightly dividing the word of truth. Mm -hmm. My whole life, it's been whatever, whatever God asks of me, no strings attached. And so... Mm -hmm. If he wants me to go here, he wants me to do that, or he wants me to tat, I learned to tat, you know, <laughs> the rest of my life. I'm, I'm good with that. But but uh, what I'm really about is, and I really like to cook too, so <laughs> so I'd, I'd be fine. But, but the thing is about rightly dividing the word of truth and yeah. wisdom, what's wisdom? And so... As, as, well, I just said, I'm, I'm committed to obeying God. I'm committed to obeying scripture. Uh, to do that, it needs to be coherent. Hmm. And I didn't, I only kind of implied this was the case, but traditional uh, interpretation of verses that are used to restrict women render the text incoherent. Hmm. And uh, I saw that when I was 16. Um, I, I think of two passages that I remember reading the first time, and I've, I've written on both of them. One is 1 Timothy 2, you know, starting in verse 1, going through 15, and you're reading along, and you get to the end, and you go, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I have this subtitle, Order in a Worship Service, and it ends up uh, giving birth, and it's like, yeah. this yeah. doesn't track, and it's like, <laughs> how am I saved through child? Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, someone might explain this to me someday, and I was willing to go on with my life, and you know, that wasn't earth shaking at the time. The other one was, um, you know, First Peter uh, three, you know, preaching of spirits in prison. That's another what? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so yeah. these are kind of, and, and Hebrews is kind of the same way, right? So this has been kind of the heart of my study is to look at passages that don't scan and say, can we do? Can we study this linguistically in a way that actually they make sense? Why is this falling apart in our hands? Apart from the fact that we may be missing a context. Hmm. Well, and a lot of times we are missing a context and how great if we could identify it. So, um, so anyway, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, and uh, 14, 35, uh, 34 and 35, these are... Passages that don't scan well. You're reading along and you say, what was that? And it's not just women, but yeah, I think women are particularly bothered by the, the childbirth part. <laughs> yeah. part. I'm good with everything until we got it. Actually, there's other things that are much more disturbing, but they go right past you, you know. And so yeah. Yeah. As, as I work with this, and particularly 1 Corinthians 11 is very troubling. Uh, uh, the traditional interpretations throw scripture in contradiction with itself. Mm -hmm. And the more I worked with it, the more I realized it was more serious than I realized in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's not that I was unwilling to submit to traditional teaching, but logic just fell apart in all three. Mm -hmm. And and if, if there's a perception of contradiction in scripture, it's, it's incumbent upon me to work with that. And that, that seems to be my calling. I mean, and not just scriptures on women, but, but to say, yeah, this seems to be confusing. Uh, how can this work? Awesome. Yeah. So the central question we've got here are these alleged contradictions, contradictions in the text, 
and say, okay, now we have a problem, an evangelical problem, <laughs> or yeah. are they an issue of how the text has been interpreted? And because I have a, a high view of scripture, I'm going to go with, there's a problem with how the text has been interpreted. And so to, to work on this, I think the first thing, well, I don't know if this is the first thing you do, but I, but I say one thing that, that's really, really important is you kind of have to strip down the passage uh, and really recognize what does the text actually say and what has been projected in the text. One thing that we really don't get is that, you know, we've been told what these texts mean. Now we've got subtitles telling us what we mean and what the topic is. And so those a lot of times are what we, we are, we're reading the text with these givens. And we've also been told that this is the context in which it took place. But you actually look at the text and you say, it, the text doesn't actually say that's the context. And so, you know, it, what you want to do is say, okay, has tradition um, overlaid these texts with interpretations that cause them not to make sense? Yeah. And so you want to strip it down. You mean like and that? So, you mean like in, in First Timothy, in instructions on worship, and all of a sudden we're talking about childbirth. That's what you mean by that. Some of the ways we're told to interpret are like, wait a second, that doesn't fit. Misleading subtitles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so that one, uh, there's there's two terrible, well, there's there's two terrible subtitles in this in this discussion. One is in Ephesians five. I think you talked about that one where it, it, someone puts a major change of subject right in the middle of a sentence. You know, and that's been common practice. Right, and it's like, yeah. no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think that uh, the author knows how to change a subject. If he wants to change a subject, I think maybe you're missing the topic. And the same's the case in 1 Timothy 2. Where do you get this is about instructions on worship? And then, and then when you start pressing people about the text and say prayer, it says men are supposed to pray everywhere. It doesn't, this is not, a, and, and Paul's teaching is to pray everywhere at all times. And so this by no means is confined to a Sunday gathering. This is an, this, and, and women, and if everyone says, okay, prayer, that's, a, that's, that's church. And it says, and women are supposed to dress modestly. It's like, is that only at church? <laughs> no, that's everywhere at all times. Good works, just at church? And go, oh, childbirth at church, okay. I could have I done that, you know. Anyway, we're talking about the wrong passage here. But we're talking about how, uh, it, it, this is, but everyone, not, this is about the order of worship. I don't know what that's about, but uh, put that, you know, that, uh, you know and, and we have these contradictions. And then, and then, but I do know women are not supposed to teach or uh, pastor a man. You know, that's not even what it says. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> if you yes. want to spend some time on that, I could talk about that too, but just bad subtitles. <laughs> and, you know, I really got into that in my work on Hebrews is that I realized that Hebrews seemed just incomprehensible because it had wrong subtitles. I say, change the subtitle, and you change the subtitles, and the whole meaning of the text changes. Whoa, right? And, and um, the thing is, you want to pick subtitles that really match the topic of the text. So what we have here and in other places is just a misidentification of the topic. You say it's about something different, you give it another title, and that changes the meaning. And even if you have confusion and contradiction, you'll try to make that make sense uh, with, with what you know, you've been told the topic is. 
And honestly, people are hanging on very hard to this idea that this is about a worship service. Uh, so you, sometimes you get extra words and translations that reverse the meaning of the text. And the most notorious one is 1 Corinthians 11.10, uh, where in almost all major translations, it said a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because what's the topic of 1 Corinthians 11? It's about women being under men's authority, right? I mean, weren't you told that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> topic. And then all of a sudden, the one place authority is mentioned, in the Greek it says a woman ought to have authority over her head. Contextually, you'd say that's over her own head. You go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Which is funny because, I mean, what's scary about this is I don't think people are realizing that they're having trouble with the idea that women have authority over their own bodies, Mm. which is a huge issue, right? And and it it makes it, the more you think about it, the more outrageous it becomes that they've Mm. changed the text uh, to read this way. This started with Chrysostom. Well, I, at least Chrysostom is the first one who comes, who, who, who is, you know, we have that, that's the first record. I believe it was him. I believe he came up with it. But so, you, you know, you can throw in extra meanings and all the, just put in two little words and all of a sudden the text means the opposite. Hmm. That's what happened in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, you can have questionable lexicography that skews the meaning of keywords. You get that with um, the discussions on head. And the word that I said, I, I kind of cutely said, don't pa- women can't pastor a, a man because the word there is translated uh, often in, in a majority of texts as uh, exercise authority, even though the King James uh, said uh, usurp, which was much better, actually, with the meaning of the word. I'd say this is just an authority word. and uh, But almost everybody in your church might mean this means to um, to be a pastor, and this is this is a common word that means to pastor someone else. And that's how it's been taught, and uh, it's, it says authority. This is about pastoring the church service. Hmm. <laughs> um, I won't I won't uh, go into that right now, but absolutely not. Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. and you apply good lexicography to that word. No, uh, today I think we're really interested in the word head. Well, mm-hmm. I don't know how yeah. much we're going to talk about that because there could be a way that maybe we won't talk about that because when we identify the topic, it becomes it, it becomes a little clearer that even though um, I may not settle everyone's my, mind um, or heart about what head actually means, it's pretty clear what's going on in the argument in regards to mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So... Given a high view of scripture, the goal should be to be faithful to the text. And, and I'm talking about the, the text. I'm not talking to, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say translations can sometimes be uh, questionable, but this is what we're dealing with. And so this takes study and discussion because when, you know, you want to trust your English Bible, but there's also an issue of maybe choosing what Bible you're going to find trustworthy or mm-hmm. actually doing the work to say, you know, there's a couple of, of uh, issues here that we want to be knowledgeable on. This is why we study. This is why scholarship is important. So we want to be faithful to the text, want to be consistent. I want to be consistent with Pauline theology when I'm working these, these texts. Um, I can't see throwing Paul in contradiction with himself. Yeah. Sometimes people talk about Paul not writing, <clears throat> actually not writing First Timothy, 
and uh, and uh, you know some of the others are challenged. Now, First Corinthians is is definitely uh, considered to be written by Paul. That's one of the tensions. Is there's a lot of tension between the traditional interpretations of First Timothy and First Corinthians, and I'm saying, can you can you work that so they don't contradict each other? Uh, and say also you want it. Uh, to be, cons- I like evangelical hermeneutics. I would say we should interpret scripture consistently with the evangelical hermeneutics. Um, in addition, we can. How about consistent with Jesus? And and uh, and in addition to that, uh, I don't think it's a good idea to assume that Paul is blatantly contradicting the Old Testament. <clears throat> For instance, the creation passage uh, that. I was just doing an interview with Preston Sprinkle that hasn't come out yet. And he was talking about the first Corinthians 11 passage. And he said, but isn't this that man was created in the image of God in his glory and woman is man's glory. Isn't that contradicting the creation passage? And I said, well, I think what you want to ask is, can we read this in a way that it doesn't contradict the creation passage, but actually interprets it? So these things are important, and and it was kind of shocked me that he put that so so blatantly out there because you know say I'm I'm taking a position in which I understand Paul is contradicting the creation account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, well, that should be that should set off an alarm, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And so you know, we so I don't know. Do you want me to lay out some of the major aspects of interpretation? I've touched on them. Uh, I could yeah. just go over them point by point. Let's do that. All Let's right. dig in. Yeah, please yeah, do. What do we want to do? Well, I'm going, I've, I've said this, and so we're going to say, state this a point. You want to interpret a scripture in its literary context. And first of all, I, I use the word constraint a lot. That's a linguistic word. That the context constrains the text. This is most true for uh, the text in which something occurs. This is very important in 1 Corinthians. Um, and uh, it's, it's to say, how does how it, does the uh, line of reasoning go? What's already been said? And how does that constrain what is said? That's going to be real important for understanding chapter 14. I mean, early on, I thought, I don't even know why we're talking about this, because it was clear that that uh, the way that the traditional interpretation was being read and the way the restrictions were coming down were contradicting the things that have been said before. I said, mm-hmm. okay, you're reading it wrong. What's a plausible reading? Um, so you want it, the text, you want to read any given passage in the context of, in this case, the letter. You want, but I also think uh, for particularly what Paul has written, you want to read Paul in terms of everything he's written. And if you don't need to ha- cause him to contradict himself, if you have a choice, don't do it. It's like, well, maybe Paul changed his mind. Okay, but is 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 that's a that's potentially true. I also am willing for Paul to develop and um, and develop his theology. Uh, some people I th- think think he's he's, he's immutable. No, you know, he's a human. He can change. He, he can be, he can get interested in other topics too. You know. Uh, but so, so yeah. Uh, yeah so, but but the thing is, is that do you have to throw him in contradiction with himself, or are you making a choice? You know that it, 
<laughs> that when there are good choices in the context that would do otherwise. And uh, the other thing is, uh, what's but about the context of the the rest of scripture, the gospels? What about the Old Testament? And it is one of the things to say, we read these things together and this they belong in, um, and we compose a biblical theology as we go. And I think with the text on women, that some of the the, the, the really harsh contradictions were easy to overlook because it was men that was that were doing the interpretations and they weren't the ones that were being pragmatically affected um, in yeah. ways that I, I haven't even touched on, although I think I alluded to the fact that I, when I read scripture for myself, I saw I was obligated, I was, uh, God created me in a certain way. And I really believed in authenticity, man. I carried that one out of the sixties. You're not going to move me off. <laughs> I'm supposed to be authentic to who I was created to be. Yes. And, uh, you know, an inside out seamless person. That's what I'm, I'm aiming yeah. at. And I, and you know, you, you get told if you're smart, hide it only so many times before you're saying there's, there's a theological problem with that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, God, cre- you know, I, I was all in all about Psalm 139. Right. And, um, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand uh, that you that we should walk in them. And then you look and you look at the parable of the talents and you say, oh, well, you know, we're supposed we're given um, who we are and we're given certain advantages and we are obligated, obligated to use those. And I can't tell you how chilling that was to to say I have an obligation and yet I'm being restricted in ways that are preventing me from doing it. And I was luckier than some. And there are other women that are having a very hard road and, um, and, and being maybe, you know, the question is, in the end, when you've been affected by this, have I been obedient? That's a terrible place. And so these contradictions are like uh, very much out there, very, very common. And we know they're there. Uh, but I think that the men interpreting scripture would try to say, well, your experience doesn't ter- determine theology. That was a big one, right? Mm-hmm. Your experience yeah. doesn't determine theology. Uh, but Russell, um, you were just so that it's abundantly clear to, to people listening, you, the, the primary contradiction you were referring to with Paul was the in one place he talks about how women are to prophesy, and in the next place, he says women should be silent. And we're saying right. we have to find a way to find congruence, right? Well, and, and don't forget the spiritual gift passage where everybody gets a gift. Right. And everybody's and in, in Romans, it says, if you got it, do it. Yeah. And in First Corinthians, it says to the church, you cannot say to another member of the body, I have no need of you. Right. And everybody's got one. Most of the ones listed are verbal. Yes, that. But I'm, t- but, but I'm talking about there's a bigger context of contradiction in trying to be obedient, both in the Pauline texts and then the Gospels mm-hmm. particularly, that, you know, that women, and, and I'm not saying all women, but I'd say probably women with certain gifting have probably been more painfully aware of. And mm-hmm. I don't blame people uh, for not seeing some of the contradictions. I think some of them they glossed over knowledgeably. But um, anyway, the, the other thing is, is um, you know, who's writing this letter? And this is a part of um, linguistics is we talk about, you know, there's every uh, piece of literature or every writing or communication, there's tenor there. Who's talking to whom? And that affects things. And so we've got quite a bit of information on Paul, you know, so you recognize uh, who Paul is and, and what he's doing 
um, and what he usually is doing as much as possible. So you place the uh, letters in the narrative of his life. And each of these passages has a chronology that's relevant. And each of, the, uh, um, each of those letters uh, are embedded in relationships between individuals and groups um, that, that have a background with Paul, uh, with the exception of, of Roman Colossians, but he also he has a connection with them. Uh, all, all of these individuals and groups have certain connections with them, and you read them in those contexts. Um, what's he saying to whom? That goes right along with, with his topic. As a person, uh, how do I understand Paul? Now, not everyone is going to say this, but uh, I really, Paul says at one point in 2 Corinthians that he's devoted to bringing all thoughts captive under the obedience of Christ. This really, to me, uh, sums up what kind of person he is and, and how he's working it. He critiques Jewish culture. He critiques uh, Greco-Roman culture um, to bring things uh, into obedience to Christ. And uh, gender and sexuality are a big thing that he's critiquing. Although in traditional um, teaching, uh, they say, oh, yeah, he critiques sexuality. But gender roles, I mean, that's Greco-Roman. It stays Uh, Greco-Roman. That's implausible. (laughs) Very implausible, particularly since sexuality was so closely connected to the gender roles. Um, and so you, you can see him in his letters and acts working on theological and practical systemization. So in a word, if I'm going to put this in my language, Paul has the goal of being coherent. Hmm. That's what he's saying. I'm trying to be coherent. I'm trying to be. And now that we, for instance, have said, that Gentiles no longer have to be circum- Gentile males have to be circumcised to be the members of, of, of the church. What changes? And in Galatians, mm-hmm. he just gotcha. hammers this thing out, hammers mm-hmm. it out. And, and um, by the end, you know that everything's cultures changed, uh, pr- church practices have changed, and authority structure has changed because there are no longer. Uh, Jews nor Greeks or Jews or Gentiles mm-hmm. uh, when you're baptized into Christ and said, no, this isn't just about salvation. This changes relationships. This mm-hmm. changes the culture of the church. And, um, and he's going to, he's going to uh, work that, that out. He's going to communicate it and try to persuade people. So his letters are also what we uh, call task theology. And they're written to certain groups or individuals to address particular situations and problems. And so uh, that, in 1 Corinthians, this is really obvious. He goes, oh, about the things you wrote. And we, we're, we're uh, responding to the questions and, uh, that you wrote about. And so to understand that Paul is addressing uh, problems and issues that are occurring should be very consistent and, and maybe the first thought rather than the last thought, rather than come up and say, we've got a universal principle that cancels everything out. You know, mm-hmm. Probably not, especially if he, especially if it's tagged as being tasked. Um, you know where he's saying, yeah. uh, "I currently am not permitting." In First uh, Timothy two, that's task theology. He he actually is saying that this is what he's doing, um, presumably at the present time. So, uh, and and so moving from recognizing Paul and what he's doing, which I think is a big thing. 
uh, we need to understand teaching on male and female in the same way in the same hermeneutics. And at the very least, when Paul says, all of you do this, or all of you don't do this, um, it needs to look pretty much the same with men as it does with women. It shouldn't uh, be radically different. Um, one of the ways historically this worked out is that uh, it, it's been said, uh, men are set free uh, by grace and the gospel. And particularly, it's understood men are set free from the Greco-Roman hierarchy that they were subjected to uh, by the gospel eventually. But women are completely subjected to it. And, and that's grace for women. We're still, we're still back in those gender roles, but all the gender roles for men have been changed, and that's for the good, and it's for the good. For, so this doesn't make any sense that being set free uh, and having grace in our lives or being saved would have radically different outcomes, actually completely opposite outcomes. So we need to understand teachings on male and female consistently and apply them consistently. Uh, we need to um, understand that the Greek language and grammar is involved in a lot of these issues. And this makes it hard. Uh, and so for people who want to be really, really convinced they want to study, they're going to have to study some things about grammar, linguistics, and, and lexicography to understand what the issues are. And one of the main things here is that uh, grammatical gender, which is what, what Greek has, um, is vastly different than gender in the Greek language. And so uh, one of the uh, fallacies, I think, that's been out there is to assume that theology is conveyed by the use of the masculine gender. Hmm. And that's not how grammatical gender works. And so what has happened um, in terms of you know, masculine pronouns or masculine words, that um, they are treated as if they're in English, you know, you understand them as, as in English. And... Um, and instead of understanding them as how, what they would mean in Greek, which, to, to put it briefly, is the masculine's the default gender. And so you're going to say a proverb, you're going to use the masculine, you're going to give a general command, you're going to use a masculine. And these aren't, even in, the, even in the singular, and this doesn't exclude women uh, from the meaning. Yeah, can the you meaning give an of, example of that? Well, okay, I can. Um, I think James one twelve uh, is is one example where it says. Um, oh, I'm not, I'm not even going to be able to um, to pull it up, but um, uh, but it's it was a it was a big battleground um, where it. Yeah, so I can read it. Real oh, quick, good, thank you. If you'd like, so James one twelve in the NIV: Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Get it? <laughs> yeah. Wait. Only men get. Only men, men are blessed. Only men are blessed, and only men receive the crown of life. You say, no, that's yeah. a proverbial use of the masculine. And in the English, when it says that, it's it's jarring. And saying, no, I think if you're going to understand that in the spirit of the language, you're going to say any person. Um, mm. And 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 yet. 
translations such as the ESV have said, no, we're going to keep this masculine sense to the language, you know, because we think that's inspired. Well, don't confuse the grammar with the theology. That's not, <laughs> that's not theological. Awesome. That's the Greek language. That's you want to talk to me about Greeks being, uh, not Greeks, uh, the ancient Greeks being, you know, uh, having a, uh, a sexist, you know, culture. We can talk all day long about that. And the language reflects um, that hierarchical, patriarchal culture. Uh, and so, that's, you know, the writers can only use the language they have and, and the grammatical um, patterns they have, but that's not conveying the meaning that the author is trying to convey. That's a proverbial statement or a universe. That, there's a universal statement for you, right? That's awesome. And uh, so I think that that was a good one, and it was kind of amazing that that was a battleground that this has to say man. <laughs> has to say man. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the meaning of the meaning of words I've already talked about has been maybe maybe central to the discussion. Uh, and it, all around these two words, kephale and authentao, kephale, which is translated head and uh, authentao, which, you know, we say dominate in the common English Bible. Um, I, I overwhelm. Um, it's actually the use of force. It's actually not an authority word because uh, massive amounts of example, not massive because there are not a whole lot of uses. It was actually easy to pull up all the occurrences of this word and study it. But a lot of them, the person doing it, the actor, didn't have authority to do it. Sometimes they did. If they did have authority, it generally got a positive evaluation. But most often, this was about someone doing something they didn't have authority for. Yeah. People that did have authority for usually had absolute power. You know, God, the Pope, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. ultimate, uh, absolute rulers in their kingdoms. These kinds of people did that word, and, it, and it, they were doing what they were you know, supposed to do. But... Uh, but everybody else pretty much was out of line. Oh, executioners, when they did it, that was, uh, that was what they were supposed mm. to do. So the use of force up to, up to taking life, up to murder or execution, are, are kind of in that range of meaning for this year, so in this word. And so abuse, yeah, uh, abuse could be in there. But anyway, uh, we, so yeah. next, Cultural context. We need to understand these scriptures as addressing the first century Greco-Roman cultural world, cultural world and the problems and situations that occurred in that world rather than the problems and situations that occur in our world. And uh, so we've unconsciously tended to use Western cultural models and mental attitudes to interpret this, that Protestant interpretation as a whole have read into the text. And we want to sort that out and say, we're getting better, better tools to be able to sort this out and say, okay, you know, we've been influenced by certain Western values such as Western individualism or something that, um, that have caused us to miss things in the text. So what's the culture that we're addressing as much as we can determine? And, and how does that help us maybe figuring out what the context might be? Um, and then linguistics, um, do a lot. I mean, a lot of what I've said is comes right straight out of linguistics. But um, mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things about studying linguistics has showed me what I've already said, that uh, when you change the context, whether you're talking about the context of situation, or you're talking about what, what you perceive as the topic, or, you know, title or something, that the meaning of the passage can radically shift. Mm -hmm. And that, that ends up saying, Whoa, if we're missing the context, it could be much more serious than, than maybe we have 
thought it was. And so, um, and, and along with that, along with the, uh, <clears throat> alternative topics and, uh, what I call, I call these frames, uh, the situation of the text, you know, then you've got that constraint by the context that we've already talked about. And um, finally, and, and I, I, I'm not sure how much I want to say about this last one. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, I think this is really important, is that we want to recognize the role of identity and experience and interpretation. Mm-hmm. So it, it used to, it, we used to believe when I first, you know, started studying the Bible, that if you followed the rules, that you would you would come up with with a objective interpretation. I mean, it was, yeah. And so, yep, yep. And so, these great male scholars <clears throat> who have followed the rules and came up with the interpretations had the confidence that they have had a. There's one meaning of the text, and this is it. And um, <clears throat> recently, evangelicals as a whole have come to realize that no interpreter can be wholly objective. I think you can try, you can work at it, but you got to work at it. Um, in, in the sense, you're never free from your experiences, your presuppositions and your background and, and your bias or even your purposes in, in, in uh, interpreting the text in the first place. And so um, Western biblical interpretation, traditional interpretation has been dominated largely by men of status from the dominant culture. And it stands to reason we would need some correctives in how we read, particularly in passages about um, women and minorities mm-hmm. and status, yeah. the Galatians three stuff. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, and so we ought to attempt to read the scriptures that address women through the experiences of women and their concerns. And, well, in the case of the text we're talking about, you know, that would be as much as we can recover those in the first century Mediterranean world would be great. Mm -hmm, Um, But even, even um, to invalidate women's experience as uh, in interpreting scripture in other ways is, is heavily problematic. I I actually don't think men um, understand how they're using their own experience. Um, In uh, Paul and gender, I actually talk about John Piper's uh, description of his calling and it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, story and really experiential, you know, and hearing God sp- speaking to him and calling him and um, changing the direction of his life. But when women have said that, they've been told your experience doesn't term- determine theology, mm-hmm. you know. And, 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 and then I said, I always like to say um, one day a student who wasn't a great student <laughs> stared at me and I, I, I just repeated this in a conversation, kind of conversational situation. He said, Cindy, there is no calling without experience. And I went, ah, mm. <laughs> ah, mm. <laughs> women have been yes. told their experience doesn't count and therefore they've been robbed of, of their calling. Yeah. Um, that's very problematic. Okay. Is that, I think that's enough to talk about our interpretive, uh, the way we approach interpretation and why it matters. Uh, matters Absolutely. Heavily. And, and that really sets us up for, we're going to dig into the texts, a few of these texts that we mentioned here in just a moment. And that's Cindy, that sets us up really well for some of the work that we're going to hear uh, that has been done as we walk through kind of some of these texts and some of the things that we highlight. I do want to ask one question maybe before we get into those texts in particular, 
And, and that has to do with sort of how scholarship has changed over the last 30 years. And so um, what, what has developed, right? And so, and I asked that question partially because, you know, we have maybe a key text from a complementarian background that, that emerged it, I think it was 1991. So shortly after you made this decision uh, to kind of at least change your mind around becoming egalitarian, uh, was Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, produced by John Piper, Wayne Grudem. And, you know, a lot of people have contributed to that. Uh, 30 years later, you know, things are a little bit different mm-hmm. um, in terms of some of the scholarship development. We have the book Discovering Biblical Equality, of mm-hmm. course, which is in its third edition. There's been some development there. Can you help us understand, you know, what has changed in 30 years that might be helpful to advancing this conversation? Yeah. And I think you're aware that some people say nothing's changed, um, that, that we, no. we reached a dead end, but actually... Um, that's manifestly not true in, in scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, in 30 years ago, scholarship, had, uh, egalitarian scholarship had barely broken ground. And, uh, th- but I would say probably the foundational issues were pretty well, pretty well laid out. And mm-hmm. um, we also have some good leading scholars uh, in, in the area, Gordon Fee. And that was, when I found out that Gordon Fee actually believed this view, it made me much more comfortable in, in entertaining it because he wrote mm-hmm. my textbook on exegesis. That I used all of our textbooks. We all use that one. <laughs> What's up with that, right? Yeah. And so, so that made me say, well, it, it, finding out he was a Pentecostal actually helped a lot because... Yeah. You know, it's, it's what are you prioritizing here? And he's going to prioritize things like the gifting, spiritual gifting and the leading of the spirit. And I go, OK, that makes sense. And I was friendly to that. I, I was OK with that. But anyway, Gordon Howard Marshall, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, person who uh, represented the evangelical position in Aberdeen, who many of the leading um, evangelical scholars have studied with. Howard Marshall is egalitarian. Ben Witherington came in early and his doctoral work has been in, and this was like right at that point that, that he published about 30 years ago, Craig Keener published about 30 years ago and Linda Belville and Aida Spencer, I think were publishing back then as women, but, but they, they were women who were again, making their reputation with these verses. These men though, um, you know, they, they were, they had more track, had a lot of traction. Uh, Linda and Aida are heroes though. And uh, so what's happened since then? Well, there's been a maturing of, of hermeneutics. I think that, say, back in, well, say before 1989, people were holding the position, but the scholarship was, as it must, lagging in terms of working through the issues. And so uh, in the last 30 years, we've just had an, an exegetical showcase of evangelical historical uh, grammatical hermeneutics yeah. and ranging over all the things we've talked about, literary context, social uh, histor- uh, historical context, lexicography, the meaning of grammar, gender, gender and translation. That's been a big one. And the construction of a biblical theology that's coherent. Um, but I would say that uh, one of the, one of the biggest areas of expansion has been on socio-historical context. Hmm. And that's probably made the most greatest strides about 
how do we understand, for instance, the culture of Ephesus? And so, so much good work has been done that, again, you know, you reread the texts in the light of Aphrodite and the work that's put out and they do, they do look different. And, um, another thing that's changed though, and, and it is what it is. I realize that this doesn't change, make the hermeneutics right or wrong per se, but the position has gained some powerful advocates like Tom Wright. And, uh, and these, uh, these people are advocates. These aren't people that are quietly holding the position and writing an article or two. You know, Tom Wright is coming, Mike Bird, Scott McKnight, and more recently, um, a um, slightly younger Nijay Gupta has been yeah. a great, uh, been, been just speaking out and doing blogs and um, using the media. And I honestly think this has made a huge impact. Yeah. Um, and that's not to mention people like Lynn Coick, you know, who's doing the scholarship yeah. in the trenches uh, that, that is so backs that work. And a whole lot more people are just quietly taking this position. And so um, I'm putting this out there. I think it's true. Um, I, it's from my observations. There was a shift in 2016, which happened to be when my book came out. And I'm not ta- saying my book caused it, although I think it's contributing to it. Um, <clears throat> but for several reasons, um, a number of things in 2016 and followed shortly by the Me Too movement have impacted uh, scholarship. And I see people reevaluating their positions and saying, could be wrong. And, and uh, I hear constantly about scholars and professionals who are who are changing their position and it's kind of like a wave Um, some of us are asking what have we done what have we done what is the meaning of this these things what what have we done in many areas i I, i've got about three or four areas that that happen i mean another thing that happened is that um the leading complementarians got accused um, within the Southern Baptist movement by Southern Baptists of heresy, which is what the egalitarians had been saying all along. <laughs> and they'd say, mm-hmm. oh, we're not the heretics. You know, that's just what egalitarians say. And we were going, I taught church history. And I, I knew, I knew. I mean, I, I remember sitting there in, um, in a session where I heard um, a leading scholar, I won't say his name there, he said Christ, uh, Christ had a different will from the Father. And I started, you know, l- looking around saying, this is where we tear our clothes and throw ashes on our heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was angry that the Trinitarian discussion was being subsumed under gender. I, I mean, I'm like, what is this? You know, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and uh, to, to hear that, it's like, I knew. But it took uh, a good almost 20 years for that, for that, that got confronted finally by people they respected in 2016. And I think that caused a huge, <laughs> a huge rethinking. I was saying, wait a minute. Okay. And, um, and that's, yeah, and I that's, don't know if we're going to get to eternal subordination uh, today, but, but yeah, we should at least name that. Um, yeah. That, uh, eternal subordination of Christ. That's an Arminian doctrine. And that was dealt with at the Council of Nicaea. So these are the things that have changed. And you, I don't think these are small things, but um, this isn't just about uh, people, people responding to current events. There's also some very good work that's being done. And then when people do change, they do very good work on it. 
And I, biblical scholars, evangelical scholars just don't, you know, they don't jump the tracks overnight. They're, they're going to work on this for a while and saying, I'm not going to change my mind until I'm convinced by scripture. That's happening. That's good. Yeah. Well, speaking of um, kind of changing our minds by being convinced by scripture, I mm-hmm. want to dig in. Let's Mm -hmm. dig it. Let's start with Galatians. Galatians, I think, is a great place for us to sort of begin when it comes to to this conversation. It can be foundational, specifically Galatians Mm 3.28. And it's been interpreted differently by by folks, right, in terms of the extent to which Galatians 3.28 applies to male and female. And so can you help us unpack where Galatians 3.28 is actually meant to fit in the whole book of Galatians uh, leading up to it. Yes. Well, so this is an issue of constraint. What's the context in which this statement occurs? And uh, so you look at the entire argument of Galatians, and Paul is explaining in detail, as I said earlier, everything that's got to change in church practice and the relationships as a result of there being no Jew or Greek in Christ. And by the time you've worked through the whole uh, book, you can, you can identify, go through it, write down the things that change, you know, what are they? There's changes in the culture of the church as a whole. The church is no longer going to be culturally Jewish. It's going to include Gentile culture in it. That is unbelievable. Um, Mm. That is unbelievable. Uh, You're going to change your social practices. You're not going to discriminate against uh, Gentiles and eating. And um, there are other social practices are to say some things you let set. You're not going to impose a a religious calendar or certain religious festivals on each other. But, but, but that's going to have diversity. Uh, so social practices uh, that are very pragmatic and work out in everyday life. Uh, and then the, and this is a little bit more, you say, is the authority structure changed? And I would suggest, first of all, in the letter, the authority structure changes. And then in uh, the church as a whole, the authority structure changed. Because once you uh, say, okay, um, uncircumcised men are, are led into the church, they become, come into leadership. And uh, uncircumcised men can represent a circumcised Jesus. I don't think people realize how radical that is. And they say that when they talk about women can't represent Jesus because they're women, it's like, but I'm not sure it's a bigger thing in the Jewish mind that men who are uncircumcised represent a circumcised Jew. <laughs> that was big. And, yeah. and, uh, and it was a huge change. So leadership, you know, now you have uncircumcised men in leadership. But Paul's leadership himself, if you read, read what he writes about leadership and how he writes about the other leaders. You see, you see him receiving a, a call to apostleship on the basis of his mission to the Gentiles, which has this content. And so now he's placing himself as an equal with the 12. Whoops. Mm. <laughs> that there is a big change in the authority structure. And, and he's, you know, he's standing. And as church history worked out, you can see that, that this became the dominant um, that the authority of the Gentiles became dominant and it changed here. So to say, no, nothing change, nothing changes in 328. When we have this context where there have been, there's, there's a seismic shift 
uh, that he's going through in detail. And then right in the middle of this seismic shift discussion, that's where we get um, this. He's, he's saying the same goes for slave and free and, and male and female. What applies to Jew and Gentile applies to slave and free and male and female. And I can't see how you read it any other way. That's what you would call constraint. You don't say, oh, no, now all of a sudden we're just talking about baptism. And that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about here. I say, no, that's the very thing that he said. You're baptized. It's not about circumcision. It's about baptism. And that, that uh, is where your identity lies. And there are no competing identities with it, either in the way you, you perceive yourself or in the way people perceive you in the, in the, among the people of God. And so, um, that, so this is what I'm saying. This is theological and practical systemization. He's doing it for us in the Jew and Gentile issue. Uh, and, and it's homework to do it in the slave and free and male and female, slave or free, male and female, to be exact with the text. Uh, and um, yeah, so, so to limit it is to go against the context and the constraint that the whole argument is making. Oh, and I wanted to say there's a, 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 a companion verse in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 where he um, says he says the same thing, only leaves out male and female. There's no... Um, I, I can't remember if it says Jew or Greek or it says Jew or Gentile, slave or free, in regards to the gifts. It says you're all baptized by one spirit, and there's no uh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And so you don't say, I don't have need of, don't have need of you. So they're practical outworking in another passage oh, yeah. of a parallel text. So to say, no, this is just limited to salvation. Well, it's not in 1 Corinthians 12, demonstrably. Yeah. And I have so heard I don't that think specifically it would be. about Galatians. I've, I've had people say this to me. No, Galatians is only talking about uh, access to salvation. It's only a salvific thing. It's not, it doesn't have social implications or authority implications. I have heard that uh, from, from some people in past contexts. Yeah. Well, that is, that is the stand. And, and so a lot of people are taking their stand on this verse on both, both camps. And um, if I can use that word, that sounds sad, but you know, we're talking about people who are in a variety of places. And so, you know, to just say we're all polarized maybe isn't fair, but to say, yes, in this, in this passage, there's been these two stands and, um, and you know, the, the egalitarians have said, it's, this sets everyone free in society. And it's like, no, it doesn't, you know, it's like, so they're both wrong in my view. Um, it, because, um, it's, it's not that I'm, I, I'm very much in favor of us working in our culture to bring it into conformity with the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. But this passage is about what you do in the church. And Paul was not taking on the whole Greco-Roman culture and freeing slaves and, and being an egalitarian for women. He was saying, this is what we're doing in the church for these reasons. Good. So is there, and maybe this is sort of unfair because you've just unpacked this, but is there a one or two sentence summary of Galatians 3.20, especially as it yeah. relates to, you know, gender? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> to say what goes, what goes for Jew and Gentile goes for slave and free and male and female. There is, uh, what applies to, what applies to one applies to all three. And they, the equality or inequality of race, status, and gender stand together. That's good. Awesome. Yeah, I think I think good. you'll find hermeneutically the same issues that cause discrimination, uh, the same arguments, the same hermeneutics are used in all 
three to, to discriminate. Okay. Yes. Super helpful. And that yeah. parallel passage in, uh, in the gifts works super helpful to understand. Yeah. That. It's without question, uh, not limited to salvation, but, but talking about what, how you actually function in the body. Yeah. Yep. So cool. So cool. Hey, uh, can we shift to uh, another set of texts? Um, mm -hmm. Cynthia, man, I was blown away when I first got uh, you introduced to the, the whole concept of veiling in First Corinthians mm -hmm. 11. So can, mm -hmm. you, can you walk us through First Corinthians 11, 14, all that kind of stuff? Give us a bit of a picture of that. Right. So um, I was going to, I'm going to give an overview. Can I give the overview first and, and give, say, this is what's happening in the passage before we, we get into <laughs> that. Yes. I think talking about the topic of the passage is really important starting point. And I can, I can just totally sidestep that and say, there should be one thing that's perfectly clear. And that is that first Corinthians 11, two through 16 is giving biblical support, however we understand that biblical support, for culturally appropriate dress for men and women, which they should wear when they pray and prophesy, in which they're performing precisely the same roles and functions. Hmm. So okay. to use First Corinthians 11 to say there's different roles and functions in the church for men and women, it's saying the opposite. It's doing the opposite. What it is saying is that um, the fact that we have the same roles and functions does not do away with whether we're male and female. <laughs> and that's, you see the same thing in yeah. Galatians that he's actually, he's protecting the distinctions and between male and female. And he's saying, yeah, yeah the way you dress um, actually, you know, has a symbolic uh, communication that I'm going to give a biblical support. Uh, to to maintaining, and so and and there's that biblical support is where we have questions. But um, the that the topic has been identified as women are submissive to men, and it's like no, what you're really talking about is is apparel that a that a man and women should wear when they're praying and prophesying, and nothing to do with really with submission at all. Uh, not that not not in the sense that they're talking about. There's a certain kind of submission, but it's it's a it's it's submitting, it's submitting I think to cultural mores, but it's also it's also kind of turning them on their head a little bit as well, which Paul does. Yeah. So, uh, so so you want me to go back and talk about it? So you want me to walk through the passage, and you want me to to ask some questions in view of saying that. Well, I think what happened is is that's one of those passages you described earlier where you read it and you think, oh, okay, so not sure what I'm supposed to do with this whole, uh, <laughs> you know, with this whole head coverings, veilings thing as part of this uh, discussion. But um, you're, you're certainly your research gave some some interesting insights mm -hmm. that maybe removes this or reframes that from a subjugation um, or dominance uh, type thing, which maybe seems foreign to North Americans, Canadians, whatever, who don't aren't from cultures that practice veiling or, or anything. Right. That's um, a big problem um, is, is our orientation to veiling and then our presuppositions about how women are going to behave and how women are going to feel about it in cultures that veil. And so um, that we don't understand 
the veil. And we think, you know, I, I really honestly think a lot of male scholars have been influenced by the bra burning in the 60s. Yeah. And they, they see, you know, that, that, that things like the, the feminist, women's live movement and the things that women did is this is how women are, you know. So, you know, women are going to be throwing off their veils. And then they see um, male writers complaining about women doing things like removing their veils. And they go, see, see. You know, mm. see, mm. and and so I I would say that um, when you actual actually study veiling, and there are a couple of really good works out there on veiling, and actually some um, there's there's even f- feminism in, in uh, Islam that that are studying veiling mm. and uh, the history of veiling, and it all kind of is on this this trajectory that there's a similarity, and as one of my a missionary friends who's in Turkey right now says, um, you know, Cindy, most of the world has ba- has veiled. It's it's the exception that women have not veiled. And I want you to know that um, in the first century, um, th- there wasn't a Western culture that was unveiled. That way, that, that wasn't a, you know, it wasn't an option out there to say, yeah, there could be a life where we didn't have this symbol, you know, and and so. Um, Men had their reason. Men regulated veiling. They had their reasons and they had their theology. And, and yes, it was incredibly patriarchal. And so that's uncomfortable because uh, it's generally said the way men are we're looking at head coverings. And maybe I should say I'm using the word veiling for a vast variety of things. And I probably should just say head covering to be less confusing because we're just talking about placing something on the head and it could have various styles. And it's that's it, it's a you know you're saying in the in the general theology it probably it should cover the the hair but sometimes it could be symbolic, um, and uh, and that the hair was uh, so Paul says the hair is the women's glory. This very much reflects not only the culture of the time it reflects what people still say. I could tell you stories. I don't think we have time, but stories in Africa. My mother came out in her glory. Never saw my mother's head covered, but when there was a part, uh, when, when there was a you know an event, she would come out in her glory, take off her head covering, mm. and uh, I'm like, well, this is exactly what it's about: is to say, mm. a hair is a women's glory, and so in, a, in the cultures that veil, and um, I'm not necessarily saying this about Nigeria, but but uh, in the Mediterranean world and other cultures, it's like, yeah, it's their glory, and they should cover it up because it's dangerous. And, um, and so, yes, is that patriarchal? It's very uncomfortable for people to, um, for some people to actually either accept or support that Paul it would be buying into such a patriarchal practice. That's one of our problems. It's to say, is Paul supporting an oppressive patriarchal practice? But the other side of it is this, is that, um, is that for women, it was the wearing this head covering was a, a symbol of status, of honor and respect, and it protected you from being sexually harassed. And um, you weren't wearing it necessarily because your, authority, your, your husband, your authority told you to, or it's a relationship with him. It was the culture that was telling you to do it. It wasn't about submission to the husband. It was submission to the culture. We have many stories about where husbands told their wives to remove their veils or to remove their head coverings or to come out of harem when she wasn't supposed to. 
Vashti, for instance. Um, and uh, and uh, so we so and, and, and what did Vashti do? No, <laughs> I will not. And so we have a big history of women saying, no, I will not remove my veil. I won't. And um, even in in and there's far more stories about that, about women uh, being forced to remove their veils than women rebelling against veiling. I mean, but we have women that are, you know, that that have been influenced by Western culture that won't veil in, in some of the cultures that veil. Now, that's understandable. That's not what's going on here. So for a woman wanted to veil. A woman wanted to veil. Uh, she, she wanted to as a rule. Now, there were exceptions, but they were exceptions. And, uh, and so, it, but, but it's the idea, you know, do you want to be sexually abused or not? Hmm. Yeah. Maybe there's a myth that women want to be sexually abused and treated as sex objects. But, uh, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you know what, when a woman is functioning in these roles in the church of leader, what, what, you know, I'd say prophecy is a leadership role. I'm leading in prayer. I'd say praying at all that, she shouldn't be uh, looking like she's soliciting. <laughs> mm. And um, yeah. what's interesting about this is that there had to have been women who weren't allowed to veil that were present in the church. And um, that would be slaves or freed women were not allowed to veil in normal person, were not allowed to put on head coverings that that showed that they weren't honorable women, right? Because mm. status, I'm an honorable woman. Uh, if, if you actually had not led an honorable life and if you've been enslaved, you hadn't led an honorable life. No argument. Uh, you, you were available to everyone and anyone. And a uh, horrible thing that we could talk about later. Uh, but uh, this is really something if Paul is saying all women, all women wear head coverings. And this is actually something incredibly redemptive. Uh, I'm so a new creature in Christ. Yes, if I am a woman walking down the street in that time without a head covering, what am I saying to people? You're saying you're sexually available, or at least uh, you could be assaulted and you couldn't do anything about it. Hmm. So wearing a head covering is a protective mechanism even? Oh, yeah. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. It's also, okay. though, your modesty. I mean, um, it, it was, you know, you can't, for the women, this was part of, of, of covering up, of not being naked. And so even today, this has always been the case, when someone rip, rips off a woman's head covering, it's like pulling her clothes off, pulling the rest of her clothes off. It's exposing her to shame, which is what Paul says. You know, Paul is saying yeah. uh, women are exposed to shame. And so um, one of the things about this passage uh, is that I'm saying women would want to veil, particularly in, in Corinth. I, if I were in Corinth in that house church, yeah, I'd want to veil. <laughs> no mm. trusting those guys. Yeah. <laughs> and call themselves brother all they want. Yeah, so the practice of veiling is when you're at home and you're among your family, you take off, you, you, you could take off your veil. Now, some didn't. Some chose not to, actually. Uh, and so I could see the kinship thing you know so guys guys playing a kinship card hey we're all family here why don't you take off your veil you know and yeah. and you saying no no i'm yeah. not going to be doing that here um yeah. and and that being the issue uh, but you know, so there could be a number of reasons uh, the pragmatic effect though 
would be the equalization among women if all women who pray and prophecy veil, uh, there's an equalization of status in Christ in the church, which is a great symbol. And so um, I see that the way that the argument hangs best together is that, um, that Paul is supporting women, what women, what women are wanting to do. And he's gently correcting men. And it makes a huge, first of all, it solves a number of exegetical problems. Number one, it makes sense when he says a woman ought to have authority over her head. They make the call on this one. And it's like, okay, if they're one, and, and they said, oh, they couldn't possibly make the call because they're the problem. Wait a minute, what if they're not the problem? How do you know they're the problem? You know, and it's also giving corrective teaching to men. Why don't you treat men as the problem? You know, oh, no, just the women are the, you know, doing crazy things. And, um, if you read it as, no, a woman would want to veil in that context, and uh, for someone is making an argument for them to remove the veil, and I could see it also being a status issue. You shouldn't have a symbol of status in here. Um, I see it more probable, though, that they'd want to say, oh, we're all family. I think that's, the, I think that's a very probable argument, um, it, which would be like, yeah, strip down here um, in front of us since we're all family. It would be very uncomfortable. And... And, uh, and, and I would say transparently <laughs> problematic. And so Paul's like, feels like, nope, you know, I'm supporting the women on this one. But he doesn't support them in a heavy-handed way. And this is the thing. Um, you know, when he gets to the end of, of um, uh, this thing, and he starts it out by saying, you know, I'm commending you because you're doing what I say. And then, he's, then in 17, he goes, now in the following instructions, I'm not commending you. And he said, I'm commending you. Now I'm not commending you. And he looks like he, uh, if, if he's attacking, he's attacking the women. If they're, if they're actually doing something wrong, this is a very harsh practice. And it makes you feel like, even though it says, uh, let, her be, let her be shaved, it makes you feel like, you know, that the guys in the church are going to grab you and shave your head if you don't comply. You know, right? Uh, yeah. It's very yeah. harsh. Yeah. And it said, oh, women, you're inferior, inferior, inferior. Now I'm going to get hard. <laughs> now I'm going to get. You know, now I'm going to really. And it was like, this was. I read this as far harsher than I read the following instructions about communion. You know, but he's saying now I'm going to get tough and say if you do read this as a gentle, it's a gentle correction and a nudging of men. And then he said, okay, and so I know you're like I know you're going to you know be be with me on this kind of. And here's here's a rationale behind women veiling. And they should make the call. And, and, uh, here's the, um, and we, we, we don't, uh, whether he's saying we don't have any other such practice, people make a big deal about that, but that could be referring to the disputing of veiling. We don't, we don't dispute the veiling and that way that would work grammatically. Usually it's been taken as we, we have no other practice, but to wear head cut for women to wear head coverings in the church. And really all the evidence that we've got, the earliest evidence and the catacomb pictures and everything else, women are wearing head coverings. Um, and so this is a general practice. Uh, now, there's a lot of exegetical issues in the passage. Uh, we, we, we don't have time for them, I don't think. That is, uh, I covered my book, and um, that uh, when women are viewed as a problem, this passage is read against women. Yeah. And read as attacking women, and read as you know, you're not even in the image of God. You know, <laughs> this, mm. men are in the image of God. You're not even in the image of God, so you should be, you know, 
you know, be wearing a, the sub, a symbol of subjection. This is why people find this so hard for me to take a positive, you know, stance on. No, you can feel good about veiling, you know. <laughs> it's like, uh, but you know, I, I you know what? I'm, I'm going to say this kind of flippantly. I, I don't care. I think this is the reflection of what was, and we've got to deal with it. And I think it's a very good example of how you work within the culture, even with a symbol like this, and even this can be redemptive in Christ. Um, and and uh, and I think it's I think it works beautifully. But I think that the passages that are uh, read to denigrate women are being read exactly wrong. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think what he's concerned about is he's saying, let's not shame the women. This is my concern. Women should not be shamed. Instead of saying, yeah, shame the women. Shame them by, you know, doing this and doing that. Yeah, shame their heads. You know, he's, he's saying, no, we don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Like if you think um, women are to be silent, then this passage is incoherent because it's incoherent, the directions for women how to speak. And, prophesying. and then you've got the full range of spiritual gifts that the spirit distributes as he wills. You're not going to make rules. Uh, and, and they're supposed to use it. Where else are they going to use it? But uh, when they're gathered uh, together as the people of God in the household of God. And yeah. so you're not supposed to be making rules about that. Yeah. Hey, can we jump to, to chapter 14? Absolutely. Good to go. So in chapter 14, uh, this has been traditionally read as um, women are to keep silent in the church. Yeah. And, you know, you pull out 1 Timothy 2, 12, and you pull out this passage and you interpret them with each other. And, uh, and you say, there you go. And so women are to be restricted severely. What's really sad about this, and I, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, is that um, the churches are being encouraged uh, to, you decide how much you want to restrict, restrict women. Restricting women's the good thing. And so... You can get some guidance in where you want to restrict women, but if you want to restrict them more, go for it. <laughs> this is kind of, I call this the theology of drawing the line, that this is about restricting, that restricting women is what we're compelled to do. And uh, this is so, con this is, I say, when you throw scripture into mass contradiction, that's the thing that, that's a mass contradiction. And so this is a, a passage that looks like it's telling the church to silence women. And um, so what can we say about that? You know, well, first of all, we can say we've been reading passages about women operating in the same roles and function as, as men specifically. We see all, uh, that all believers are called uh, to exercise their gifts and the church is not to restrict their exercise of gifts. Uh, we see prophecy has already been highlighted as being one of the gifts that a woman should do. Then you read chapter 14, and what does Paul think about prophecy? That's the most important one of all, most authoritative one. He'd rather you, everybody prophesy, and that, that, that's important. And, and he even has this very cute scenario where a stranger walks in, and everybody, including women, prophesy, and he falls down to his knee. They, they confront him. And he falls down to his knees and they oh, God's among you. This is really different than what people say women are allowed to do in the church. I mean, he's, he's visualizing prophecy as this confrontation and as well as everything else that it's, you know, prophecy can, can be many things and it's very authoritative. And he pictures it as being authoritative. And he's saying, yeah, 
women do that, they just got to cover their heads. <laughs> so this is a very different, I don't see, I don't see this acknowledged enough, a very different picture. And so what's going on here? It was, well, um, in first Corinthians, you know, so just as, uh, briefly, first Corinthians, uh, 14, 26 through 39. What's the topic? Sorry about that. What's the topic? The topic is for people to stop talking at the same time while other people are sharing a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a prophecy, a revelation to be a prophecy, right? A tongue or an interpretation. So you read that, he goes, okay, this is what you do. And then he starts, he starts in on three groups that apparently are violating this principle. They are, while other people are um, you know, speaking in tongues or prophesying or teaching or, or singing a psalm, other people are talking at the same time. So, the, so, he, talks, uh, so he corrects the people who speak in tongues, uh, the people who prophesy, and then women who are chatting. And he, uh, asking questions out of turn, that's constrained. Something about asking questions. And uh, all three of these groups are instructed to be quiet and submissive while their people are speaking. And that's in continuity. And so the thing is, what's the topic? It's talking out of turn. And that, cons that can also constrains the, what's said to women. And it's using the same kind of language. And so... I, uh, he's already established that women are um, praying and prophesying. He's already established that they're um, supposed to be using these verbal spiritual gifts if the spirit gives them to them. I mean, maybe the spirit won't, but this, the spirit does there to use them. And then, um, and uh, then we get to this. Everyone, each one of you, is going to uh, do one of these activities. You know, he's encouraging everyone to do it. And then he's speaking to the people who are talking, who are, who are interrupting, uh, who are o overlaying, so to speak. And so when, they, when he talks to women, you can infer that women are talking out of turn. And, and first of all, from the topic, it's, part of, it's, it's the topic. It's what's, what we're talking about. And uh, there are all kinds of reasons. You know, people say, why would women be singled out? Well, number one, let's say we've got a context of situation. Apparently, it's a problem here, you know? <laughs> Um, but there are studies that are done, um, Ken Bailey um, and um, Paul through Mediterranean Eyes does a really good job of talking about why women would be talking at a turn. And he's saying, that's been my whole experience when I taught women in the Middle East. And you know, they're not trained to be in, in the classroom. We could go on. I have so many reasons about why women might be talking. Education level, I mean, why would they be above a second grade level uh, when we see cultures that you'd say were similar and parallel? You know, the, the women a lot of times aren't getting past the second grade level. So people say, well, they're literate, uh, just barely, mm. you know? And so not necessarily enough to follow Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians. And so, and another thing is they may not really be um, very fluent in Greek. Uh, we're in a multicultural situation, and if their first language wasn't Greek, you know, women who are in immigrant communities uh, don't learn the language as well as the men do because there's a, a, a domestic public uh, distinction in roles. And so there are all kinds of reasons why women would be talking. The least, not the least of which is it's a potluck and they're all, you know, how women are when you're doing a potluck. So. <laughs> I actually had this situation in the church once. I, was, I guess I used a, a word that was beyond the vocabulary of one guy. 
and he turned to his wife almost full full volume and said what did he just say <laughs> uh, so so i sort of always think of that story when i'm yeah. when i'm reading this well i think and, and paul and jenner i actually said i was teaching a class where i had a woman who was mentally challenged and she really liked coming to my classes but she was completely disruptive and you know was always asking everything to be explained and i said finally after about one session of that i said i really want to answer all your questions after class i will answer everyone and that that you know could be what's going on here because i mean if there's only so many times you want to break for clarification where you say okay now you know we're, we're talking about the basics here um you need to catch up and catch up in your education to where you can actually, you know, keep up with the conversation so we can actually keep the, keep the thread of our teaching going here. Otherwise you that's, get nowhere. That's and, so uh, helpful. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's and it's so, so plausible. And hey, so, um, I, I want to honor your time. And so mm -hmm. I wonder if we can make a jump, uh, to first Peter and here's why, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know when I sort of started to really think more through an e egalitarian lens than a complementarian lens. But one of the passages that I wrestle with is 1 Peter chapter 3. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because this is household cults. Chapter 2 talks about how slaves submit to masters who are harsh. Chapter 3 says, in the same way. And I'm uncomfortable with that. Can, can you help me? First of all, help us understand how, how that's not a, you know, perhaps the general restriction on women. Uh, but certainly, how do you how do we marry these two instances? Because it, you know, I've, I've heard some in a in a deeply, you know, again, this is only a slice of the complementarian uh, spectrum where they say, yeah, you know, as, as long as your husband's not beating you too bad, you should. And, and so I'm uncomfortable. So can you can you help us with First Peter three and. Yeah. Yes. A uh, huge concern in, in uh, an area that's, I think, getting addressed much more publicly now. And um, I think we're getting this, hopefully getting this sorted out, at least among right thinking people. Um, it is what it is. <laughs> Paul was writing instructions to deal uh, for, for slaves and women to deal with a, an incredibly harsh and restrictive culture. And so you can, in a way, you can uh, compare a woman's uh, situation in the Greco-Roman world to a slave's uh, in terms of what options did she have? What was open to her? Uh, now, we can say that would be how it legally was, in a sense, but the practice wasn't quite as bad as that. And we'll set that one aside and say, okay, some women um, were heiresses. Some women were able to operate with agency. Um, but you say in the traditional household codes that were still considered, you know, part of the culture, uh, from ancient Greece and from 500 years before, um, you know, place them in the, uh, place them in subjection uh, that in a way that was comparable to slavery. And, and that was, they were, people, women were still discussed as if the standards held, even though there was, there were exceptions, um, in practice. And so Paul is writing uh, slaves and wives on how to survive in this harsh culture. How do you live in Christ when this is your reality? He's not endorsing the reality. 
He's addressing the reality. And I already said in Genesis 3.28, Paul was not taking on the Greco-Roman culture. Uh, he could not. He did not have the authority or power to do so. He was taking on the church. And um, one thing, he, uh, the Greco-Roman household, uh, I think people want to say uh, when there's rules given, rules, commands given for the household, that this is a Christian household. But this is, uh, this is actually not uh, addressing uh, as the default uh, men and women in the household initially. Now he does address uh, husbands, uh, husbands and their treat Christian husbands and their treatments of wives. But when he's talking to wives, he's talking about wives who are embedded in a harsh hierarchical system. And how do you, what do you do? And so Greco-Roman culture required women to submit. Why? Because they were inferior in every way. And you, you read what's written, and, and it's, it's <laughs> incredible what they wrote about the nature and abilities of women. Women were simply inferior. They were deformed men. Yeah. It's only surpassed by what some theologians wrote in the medieval period, which is equally horrible because they were just taking on the Greco-Roman culture and you know converting it into Christianity, misunderstanding passages like this, but also... Uh, who knew that women weren't inferior until we started actually um, setting them on equal ground with equal education and, you know, doing doing tests? How smart are women? <laughs> oh, who knew? You know, and uh, and in some ways, women are stronger than men statistically. <laughs> that's you know, that's now. This was then. Women were unquestionably inferior, and uh, they were ideally to have no choice or agency except in domestic matters, in which they could be overruled, but they were ideally not overruled. At least they had uh, authority and agency in domestic matters, but really no choice or agency in regards to their husbands. So it could be a harsh life. Um, so what's happening here? I love this passage. I've always loved this passage. I've loved it as a complementarian. I love it as an egalitarian. Um, Peter he is equipping women to use submission as a mission and opportunity for evangelism. And now it's about agency, strategy, and equality. Because in the end, he says, oh, and you husbands, she's equal, right? Mm. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> right? At the end of the passage and in First Peter 3, 7. And so um, what's funny about this passage, uh, it's kind of, you know, that, that you see this in Titus 2. Uh, Titus 2, 2 also, um, where he's talking about, you know, everybody stay in your lane, you know, <laughs> older women, younger women, younger men, um, older men, it starts with older men, right? Uh, but, but he's telling everybody to stay in their cultural lane and say, is that reinforcing saying, yeah, we just adopt these codes? No, this is every single one. The reason is so that the gospel is not into, brought into disrepute. So the gospel will be, will shine through. And, and these and these uh, roles that the society has imposed on you, and, and slaves too are in that one. Slaves got the best one, uh, the best the best assignment because what if what they got it right, that was really going to be a strong testimony for the gospel. And in, in First Peter, as you pointed out, slaves are used as Christ-like examples. Um, and so I think what people keep missing is when you learn to actually operate missionally. Um, in, in the areas of your calling, you are being most Christ-like. And um, 
but that's but you've got to take on that identity and take on that understanding. It just doesn't happen automatically. You've got to see yourself kind of as a secret agent. Mm. You know, I've been I'm a secret agent assigned to this to this uh, this task and this location, and I'm going to operate in it. Well, this gives a great deal of agency and you say personal personal worth to slaves and women in a highly oppressive situation, and um, and so. It's like, uh, so for men, um, for men, they're supposed to be bringing women into equality, into an equal relationship, but women and slaves, they're going to comply with the culture's wars and restrictions in a way that showcases the gospel. And, you know, Paul, I mean, he's, he's going to say, yeah, you know, I get this not beat out of me and it's all worth it. Mm. You know, <laughs> he's, he's not about uh, oh, you're having a hard, hard time. And uh, he's saying, now, if you can get out of your hard time, if you can correct your hard time, absolutely, you should do it. But, but that um, the hard things in our lives can be uh, redeemed and utilized redemptively on behalf of the gospel. But you have to have the mindset. You have to actually see yourself at, as that. And how did the culture take it? Well, um, the funny thing about it, I mean, part of this is to say, yeah, if, if women aren't submitting, we're going to be in big trouble. And, and if we start, if, if slaves start rebelling, we're going to be dead. You know? uh, the Roman Empire uh, took very seriously the behavior of women and the behavior of slaves. And if you have some kind of fringe group like this, that's um, actually the women and slaves are going out of their lane, uh, they're going to attack the group. Uh, on it. And oh, Paul is navigating a da dangerous terrain and doing it, in my opinion, with grace. Because, I mean, the things he says to women are, are in that passage are very encouraging. I find them encouraging. Um, yeah, we have a dear friend here who, who's, who's probably, a, probably a complementarian, but his story is that his wife, faithful, believing wife, uh, submitted, honored, cared for, whatever, and he found Jesus through this. It's sort of this story here. Uh, he was one without a word uh, because <laughs> of this faithfulness from this missional-minded uh, dear woman. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, all of us, uh, you know, even on the egalitarian side, like, you know, men, women, in, in complex situations can be missional through right. Christ-like submission, through Christ-like humility. Love it. Absolutely. But this is not a, a call to, uh, to endure abuse for abuse's sake. And, right. uh, and when you have, these are people, he's addressing people with no choice or agency and giving them choice and agency in that situation. But when you have choice and agency, you use it. Awesome. And also I think, um, the, uh, the Ephesians five, which you've already covered is, is, uh, and with Lynn, uh, she's right. It's about reciprocity, and um, and the, I, I, the language seems to be trying to set up um, unilateral uh, unilateral submission, um, regardless of who it is you're in relationship with. And you could be in relationship with all kinds of people. I mean, I, I always point out that it's interesting that men um, have have understood original sin in regards to each other and they want to set up checks and balances to protect themselves from the original sin of other men and laws, but they want women to be subjected to, uh, subjected to the very men that they're protecting themselves against uh, without qualification. And, um, 
Mm-hmm. It was like, that is one of the things that we're talking about. There's something very wrong with that, especially when they're protecting the authority of someone who's not treating their wife as Christ treats the church, not loving her and caring for her. And then they circle their the wagons because they think it's about, somehow they think the gospel is about protecting authority. Hmm. And, and, that's, and that's where I'm going to transition then into saying something I wanted to say about, um, about what I would like to emphasize is that um, my, my reading of these passages and my, my biblical theology um, is not something that should be encouraging women to re, you know, revolt and seize power <laughs> and, and um, you know, come into their own. Other than I think God, the gospel calls us to become who we're created to be. And that's important. And that's not, that's, that's not some kind of, you know, modern thing, but that's something that is, is intensely biblical. Um, but, you know, I'm going to use a phrase that I, I always use. And when you talk about leadership in the church, everyone's qualified to be a slave. And we need to recognize that the New Testament leadership is not about grasping authority and power, um, getting into power struggles. It's not about, it's, neither is it about practicing discrimination that restricts uh, people or groups that are different from us. But it's clear, crystal clear in both Jesus's teachings and in Paul, and I would say in Peter too, all the way through, that it's about, leadership is about being a servant and slave. We've got it in Matthew 20, 25. Um, I don't see how it could be any clearer than Philippians 2, 1 through 11. In fact, when I was a, a relatively new in the faith, not too new, because I think I was actually in ministry at this point, but still, campus ministry, I came to the conclusion, and this seems pretty egalitarian, I said, you know, I don't mind women being told to submit. I said, I, I, not at all. I said, I don't, I don't think that the gospel tells, that that tells us to do anything everyone's not told. Because I've read Philippians 2. What's in Philippians 2 that, that goes beyond that? So we're all called, women are called to submit, but we're all called to submit. I was reading it right. I mean, um, that's what Ephesians 5 is about, is how do people in unequal power relationships submit to each other? And so everyone's qualified to be a slave. That's a status that has no restrictions. And, um, and, why do we miss Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 1 that, that uh, God chose the foolish, the lowly, and the despised to shame those who are entitled, to shame the wise and the powerful and influential so that nobody boasts? Why do we say anyone is disqualified for anyone? I say, and, and my thoughts are, okay, call women inferior. Sure, go ahead. Hmm. That doesn't disqualify us. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, we're told... That, that that's actually his starting point, and that's what he demonstrated. And so First um, Timothy 2.1, let's read that literally. Whoever, anyone who desi- desires to be an overseer, bishop, supervisor, elder, whatever you want to say, wants a good thing. And yet when, uh, when a woman wants to have some form of leadership, she's actually, a man is, is honored a woman is treated as if she is um, arrogant. I mean, I hear the word arrogant. How, how arrogant can you be? How arrogant? And it's like, wow, I don't see any restrictions on that verse. I think that if I, if I desire to play a, a lead role in the church, I desire to do a good thing. 
it should be a that should that's a verse that is clearly universal. Right. Yeah. So the real question is who who's got the character, gifts, ability, desire, and opportunity, and who meets the needs of the church? You know, Paul would say diversity meets the needs of the church. I think that comes through uh, in many, many, many ways. So I mean, sometimes I think you're going to get you're, you're going to be if, if you're actually trying to bring women into leadership, you might have a hard time doing it. Uh, I have I have actually seen places you know they open the doors and women won't go through mm. them sometimes, mm. um, and uh, th- that's where you you need to start cultivating and 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 training um, because you do need that diversity, and so and I would say if a woman's uh, reluctant to seize to to seize authority, but she might feel it seizing authority, that's all to the good. Mm. <laughs> You don't want people there who are, who are uh, eager to seize authority. You want any people there who are eager to serve. Such a good word. Cindy, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast. It's been, I know it's been an insightful conversation for me. I imagine it's been for Daryl as well. My hope is that if you're watching, if you're listening, then you've gained as much as I think we have today. If you haven't already, would you like and subscribe to the Local Churchology Podcast? Share it with your friends, share it with your family, because you don't know what you don't know. And I want to leave you today with this. I want to leave you just with a few questions as maybe you chew on some of the things that Cindy has helped us, I think, to understand in a better way. What has become clearer as you've listened? What is still muddy as you listen and what would help you move from muddiness to clarity? Cindy, thanks again. That's it for us and this podcast today. We're going to see you next time, hopefully, on the Local Churchology Podcast.